Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to this week's episode of The True Fiction Project. I'm your host, Renita Hora. In this episode, we'll be counting down the top three fan-favorite interviews and true fiction pieces from season one. To kick us off, let's begin with the third fan-favorite episode, Encore Wise Guy Charming featuring Ethan Hirschenfeld. Ethan is an accomplished stand-up comedian and an actor. You've seen him on shows like The Blacklist and Boardwalk Empire and the recently released Red Notice on Netflix. What I love about this episode is Ethan's honesty in his interview when he tells me how he is typically cast into bad guy characters, villains. But there was this one time when he was cast as Prince Charming in a children's version of Cinderella, a pantomime, I believe. And he tells me the story about how that worked out. The latter part of the episode features a fictional story written and read by Parker James. He's inspired, of course, by Ethan's comical experience of playing Prince Charming in this children's theater production and being called out by a little girl for not meeting her princely expectations. This happens a lot, sort of, in the performance world. You are cast into a certain type of role, and then yeah, that's where the word typecast comes from. And sometimes it works in the favor of a performer and other times it gets old. Where do you, what do you feel about that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I don't have a problem with it for me because the gold standard in TV is verisimilitude. The audience has to watch the show and get sucked in and just believe these characters. So I think 90% of what they're doing in, in the casting is looking for actors who look like the audience is going to believe this character looks like. And so actors have niches in TV. And so I look a certain way and it hasn't gotten old for me because I get to play a variety of ethnicities and a variety of types. But within, I guess you could say within a, within a certain box, Many boxes within a certain box. In an ideal world, yeah, I would be playing Romeo and I would be the romantic lead and I would be the action hero. I'm saying in an ideal world, but honestly, for me, that's not fun. I actually really like playing the bad guy or the guy, the villain or someone who might be the villain. I just find that, that more interesting, something with an edge. That's what's interesting for me. I did once play Prince Charming in like a children's theater version about 20-something years ago at a, at a theater downtown in New York. And I had a little kid come up to me. He wanted us to greet the audience in costume afterwards because there were kids in the audience. I was Prince Charming. What? What? What is that? Uh, is it Cinderella? Sleeping Beauty. Or is it uh, I, Sleeping Beauty? Oh, I know. I think this one was Cinderella. I'm pretty sure this one oh, was Cinderella. In okay. any case, I was a prince. And I'm out in the lobby, and this dad with his toddler or like six year old daughter comes up to me, and the dad says, 
honey, honey, this is him. This is Prince Charming. And she looked at me and she just basically started crying and said, that's not Prince Charming. (laughs) (laughs) So I I really, I kind of wanted to say, you know what, kid? You're absolutely right. (laughs) I am not. So that was the first and last time I got cast as Prince Charming. Wise Guy Charming Written and read by Parker James Ever since I could remember, I wanted to be an actor. To me, being an actor was better than anything. Better than the president. Better than being head of the family. And I mean, what could I say? The lights, the fame, and the chance to be anyone I wanted. It was like an allure unlike any other. The family would never understand. They were always wrapped up in the business and keeping control of the neighborhood. However, these big stars, they weren't like anyone else. They could crash any party to a standing ovation for the simple fact that they were there. They could double or triple park in the handicapped spot, and the old guys hobbling along would ask them to sign their walkers. You name a season, winter, summer, fall, it didn't matter. You could find them shutting down bars and clubs and causing all kinds of commotion. When some old nosy bag called the cops... These actors would get a personal escort back to their mansions from the chief of police themselves. This is all I ever wanted. Thinking with a family? That was nothing. I mean, I would be a nobody, doing the same old boring job as a wise guy. Stealing high-end cars, pulling bank jobs, force any number of businesses under a thumb. It was as boring as watching paint dry. I knew deep down that couldn't be me. While my cousin thought I was pulling jobs, I was actually going to acting school working any form of extra role or stage hand I could find. Being a wise guy? That was nothing. No better than the common janitor working for a buck fifty an hour, sweeping up some little brat's mess. However, being on the stage, in front of the camera, having anyone and everyone buy you any number of things? This, this is how you make the people love you. Actors may move a little fast. That's only because no one ever got in their way. My father wouldn't understand my dream. He was a Jersey man born into a Sicilian family. The business was a family affair, had been ever since I was little. I still remember every wedding, dinner, and sit-down my father dragged me to. The other monotony of it all felt like a punishment for something I hadn't even done yet. Half the time I snuck in copied play scripts stolen from the school library. The other half I fell asleep right as some maid man from Brooklyn was flipping the table in some hissy fit over dope prices. Hell, I probably should have been diagnosed with a sleeping disorder by how often my father had to shake me awake. The minute I turned 16, he put me to work for the family. I was a driver for the few cousins with big enough balls to pull bank jobs. He said that his thinking was that a couple of good dude cops would never stop a brace-faced kid learning how to drive. The truth was that my father was trying to spark some kind of excitement or interest in the business. I was no better than a glorified taxi driver. Cops were easy to fool when you didn't give a rat's for the job you were forced to do. Cops never caught us, and no one ever got shot. Unfortunately, this snooze fest of an occupation only gave me more credibility in the family. By the time I was 20, I was rocketed up to be in charge of the extortions we were running in the borough. And let me be clear, this promotion might as well have been sorting the toothpicks by size and color in Vincent's restaurant. However, for a brief, fleeting moment, I had it all. Fame, power, respect. My secret life of theater and unpaid acting had finally turned into something. It all happened 10 days ago, but I remember it like it was a week ago yesterday. 
By sheer chance, my boy Tony was a rare appreciator of the arts and had a vested interest in the local theater production company. I offered to keep an eye on the theater for him so he could spend a little bit more time with one of his favorite mistresses. What he didn't need to know was that I was actually trying out for a modern version of the classic Sleepy Hollow story. I mean, it was a chance of a lifetime. No way in hell I could ever pass this up. Sure, I was risking the family name, but what was I supposed to do? Go back to being a nobody, working the same boring job as a wise guy? With a great audition and a little help from Beretta, I landed on the role that would take me places I would have never dreamed of. Anyone could see that the prince was charming. The only one for me. Was he uh, strong and handsome? Was he big and tall? There's nobody like him. Anywhere at all. The night of the show was perfect. I had told Tony to take the night off. After all, it was only a play. Nothing I couldn't handle. And technically speaking, I never did lie to him. I told him I would be there to watch over it all. Tony didn't need to know I was starring as Prince Charming. There was a handful of talent scouts at some highfalutin art school in Manhattan in the audience. I was on edge. Never felt nerves like this before. However, this play was the best performance in my life. So well, in fact, the director had us go out in costume to have a meet and greet with the entire audience. And that's when it all came crashing down. Done some things I'm not proud of. Giving beatings was never something I enjoyed, even more so when it's done with a flip-flop. My father thought I was belittling and only reserved for the worst of transgressions. For me, it was laborious and ridiculous, but what my father said went, and that was that. Back to the point. One day, this tailor living on our block, Mr. Scheinbach, decides he's done paying for my family's protection. See, this doesn't go down well. Next thing I know, I'm beating this man within an inch of his life with a leather sandal. He's bruised, bloody, and saying he'll pay up, mainly just praying for this beating to stop. Out of the corner of my eye, I see his little girl, chocolate <laughs> milk in hand and tears welling up in her eyes. I don't think that's a face I'll ever forget. After shaking the last of the talent scout's hands, I see Mr. Scheinbach's girl. Tears were pouring out of her face as her mother was asking what's wrong. She takes one look into my eyes and she, she doesn't see Prince Charming. All she sees is a wise guy beating her father half to death with a flip-flop. One simple sentence, she burned down every single dream I've ever had of acting. You simply can't be Prince Charming. This little girl screamed while burying her face deep in the folds of her mother's dress. For me, that was it. If she could see me as I really was, then there was no way anyone else would believe me as a real actor. I was finished. And now, of course... I had to go back to my boring old job with the family. Oh, wise guys, huh? No more fame, no more respect. Just a regular schnook. Continuing our countdown, our second fan favorite episode is The Queen of Teacups, featuring Lissy Kaplan. She is a porcelain artist and has hand-painted porcelain collections for dignitaries and heads of state and private collectors from around the world. I love my interview with Lissy because in it she explains the emotional process behind her art and how she works, and this is exactly what inspired the fictional story by Michael Colucci. So let's listen to that one now. Lissy, the Queen of Teacups. How did you get to be known as the Queen of Teacups? Oh boy, well, it, I have to give credit to my, my late mother, it all started when I was about 13, and 
she noticed that I had a soprano voice like she did, and she wanted to give me my first voice lesson. And she said, let's gentle your vocal cords with a nice cup of tea. And she would bring out her beautiful hand-painted tea service. She loved Herent China. And so that's what started this ritual of tea and teacups from a very early age. So you started off life to be an opera singer, but then you say that porcelain became your canvas, in fact, after your mother passed, and you didn't choose it, but it chose you. So tell us more about that. Well, before my mother died, she said she was coming back as a hummingbird. And I know this is not related, but it kind of is. She said that I will see her shortly after she passes. And I said, how am I going to see you? There's so many hummingbirds. She said, you'll know. The journey is kind of interesting because I was going through a very, very hard time after she passed away. And I was heartbroken. She was my, not only my mother and my best friend, she was my voice teacher. She was my pianist. It was all related. So I was really having a very hard time. And I kept having this reoccurring dream. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It was more than just once that I had this dream. And finally, I screamed in my dream, what do you want me to do? The voice said back to me, use all your gifts. Use everything you have. At the time, I was a decorator. I was a designer for about 10 years. And I hadn't been singing for many, many years because I raised my children. So when the dream said, what do you want me to do? It voiced back, use all your gifts from the deepest part of you, every one of them and you will be able to find a peace and happiness that you've never experienced, I promise you. But you're going to have to use everything you've got. So that dream kind of meant something, but I wasn't quite sure, it did shake me up. After my mom passed, I went to her home and looked at all her beautiful pieces that she had left behind, and she had left me all her beautiful hand-painted teacups. And when I walked in her home, they were just sitting there, just like time stood still. And I walked around the house and I took, I sat down for a moment and I looked at the teacup that we had shared so many beautiful moments with and I peered into the design. And it was like an artist from long ago captured under a glaze forever. And it just, something spoke Mm. to me about this art form. It was magical. And I thought, who's painting these pieces now? What is this art form about? And all of a sudden I got very excited thinking about, I wonder if I could paint something like this, because wouldn't it be so beautiful to be able to leave heirlooms behind also in my lifetime, like my mother left me, these precious heirlooms. I just liked holding the teacup in my hand. It was like holding a little bird. It felt almost like a little offering, like something sacred about it. It grounded me just holding the teacup. So I packed up my car and I ran home and I put together a studio and I found a teacher to teach me this very ancient art form. The Queen of Teacups, written by Michael Colucci from Lowell, Massachusetts. Canbury Street changed for the better the day Olivia Bannum hung her first portrait. The neighbourhood blended with the poorest districts in London, as shades of grey covered every wall, road and roof. 
It took until the turn of the 19th century for Canbury to see an artist like Olivia, and in a community full of factory workers and mill hands, she added some much-needed colour to the grey. William, her husband, and Oliver, her firstborn, were cut from a very different canvas. To them, the future was in manufacturing and textiles, and so was the money. Then there was Belle, Olivia's fourteen-year-old daughter and protégé. While most young women were sent by their fathers to work in the textile mills, Olivia forbade it. The extra income wasn't worth her daughter's soul, nor was it worth the innate talent Olivia knew she possessed. Belle's dexterous hands proved perfect for tiny porcelain pieces. Like this, mother? Belle asked amid a lesson, proudly holding up her teacup. On the side, she'd made her best attempt at painting a hummingbird with a rose in its beak. Her mother's patented style. Close, Olivia answered. Belle's face sunk, weighed down by disappointment. The hummingbird was perfect. The rose? Not quite. The rose is the hardest flower to draw. It took me years to master and will take you. Olivia's words of encouragement were cut short by a violent cough. The kind of cough that burned her lungs and left specks of blood in the palm of her hand. Thankfully, her palms were already stained in red paint. She wouldn't have to lie to Belle. It'll take you just as long. Remember, it's all in the wrist, like you're conducting the Queen's Orchestra as they walk the spring parade. Olivia finished. You've seen the Queen's Orchestra? Belle asked excitedly. As much as Olivia wanted to tell the story, she knew she'd never get the words out. A backlog of coughs reduced her answer to another time. Sadly, that time never came. The fall of 1847 saw illness tear through their district like cavalry through a pumpkin patch. The cough claimed loved ones under every roof. The Bannam children gathered to say tearful goodbyes to their mother. William was either at the factory or at the bottom of a bottle. Olivia pulled her children close. You can't go. You just can't. What about the rose? Belle begged. I'm not going anywhere. When you need me most, keep your ears to the sky. The hummingbirds will let you know when I'm near. Thousands lined the streets of London for the spring parade. They hoped only to catch a glimpse of the royal family, but the backside of a knight's horse would have sufficed. Belle sat with a few friends along the parade route, they dressed as eloquently as they could, given their low status. However, the teacups they sipped from stuck out among the crowd. The Queen's carriage passed their corner, and the girls raised their cups in reverence. However, one guard mistook their reverence for mockery. How dare you mock the Queen, he yelled, slapping their teacups to the ground. The porcelain shattered and slid out into the road. We meant no disrespect. Honestly, please, you must understand. What are these? he asked, grabbing at Belle's clothes. Stolen hats and linens I can smell the streets you three hail from. Suddenly, the carriage door swung open, and 
outstepped Queen Victoria. Everyone within a hundred-mile radius knelt before her as she inspected the broken pieces of porcelain below her feet. She picked up a larger fragment depicting what was left of a hummingbird grasping a bundle of tulips. Where did you get these, girl? asked the queen, staring down at the top of Belle's head. I, I made them, your majesty, Belle answered, an answer that garnered a communal laugh amongst the guards. The queen, however, was unamused and laughing dissipated back into silence. I haven't seen porcelain this beautiful in all my years, said the queen. I have a test for you, if you take it. What, what kind of test? Belle asked, entangled in equal parts confusion and excitement. Come to the palace in one month with a teacup crafted especially for me. Something with a rose, yes? Yes, yes, of course, your majesty. One month and I can change your life forever, said the queen before stepping back into her carriage. The race was on. Why the rose? Belle screamed in her thoughts. Anything but the rose. But no matter how desperately she begged her inner monologue to change the queen's mind, reality continued to stare from every direction. She spent most of her waking time practising, sleeping or eating. Orders backed up in Patricia's shop as Belle focused all her energy on perfecting the Queen's rose. Every failed attempt was followed by the sound of crashing porcelain pieces. Belle threw herself back into her work with little time and fewer reasons to grieve. She was due on the palace steps with a beautifully painted rose on a beautifully painted teacup in exactly one week. She'd reached her boiling point. Where are you? Belle begged, surrendering herself to the open sky. Listen for the hummingbird, she said. Well, I'm listening, I'm listening, and I've never heard anything so quiet. She fell to her knees and begged for any inkling of a sign. And she got one. Next to her ear, Belle heard a faint buzz, a hum, if you will, the hum of wings flapping rapidly against a tiny frame. The hummingbird hovered in place, staring at Belle as she stared right back. Then as quickly as it appeared, it vanished. The bird was almost too swift for Belle to follow, as she could only make out the blur of its movements. Finally, it stopped again, and Belle understood it to mean, follow me. The bird weaved through stalls and under branches, and although it moved too fast for anyone else to apparently notice, Belle never lost track. It led her several blocks from home before settling on a fence overlooking a colourful garden. This was one of your favourite places, Belle said. She turned to look at the bird, but... It was gone. Hey, hey, where did you go? Don't leave me again, not yet, not now. Belle whimpered, fighting back tears. But the bird hadn't gone far. The humming of its wings settled back on the fence, only this time holding a rose in its beak. Belle took the flower and smiled from ear to ear. It was time to paint the rose.
Petal by petal, the rose took shape on the side of Belle's final attempt, as the conductor leads the orchestra. She led her paintbrush to craft the most beautifully painted rose on the most beautifully painted teacup. Guards lined the castle steps as Belle walked towards what felt like destiny. Her masterpiece was concealed in Olivia's hat box, and it would hopefully be the last time her work was transported this way. She stopped on the last step and removed the hatbox lid. Inside were two teacups, one for the queen and one for herself. Was it a fool's dream to share a cup of tea with the queen? Belle didn't think it would hurt to ask. Everything Olivia had taught her boiled down to this very moment. Belle had made teacups for every person in London, all except the one who meant the most to her. She never made it inside the castle that morning. An engraved stone crucifix marked Olivia's final resting place. Belle knelt in front of her mother and removed the teacups from the hat box. She balanced the Queen's teacup on the right wing of the cross and poured two cups of freshly brewed tea. Then a familiar sound filled her ears, as the humming of wings fluttered past her head. The hummingbird landed next to the queen's teacup, tilted its tiny head, and stared at Belle. If hummingbirds could smile, this one most certainly did. And the moment you've been waiting for, our number one fan favorite episode of season one is Janet Blue featuring Heather Vickery. She's a success and leadership coach devoted to your success. Heather shared with me her story of coming out at the age of 38 and how she rebuilt her life by taking risk. Later, we hear a fictional story by Michael Kobzik about a woman who takes a chance and a brave step towards realizing her dream. Tell us about your own story and how fear really sort of ruled your world. Absolutely. Uh, I really deeply believe that fear is actually here for us. Uh, it either owns us or empowers us, though. Mm. And we gain our power when we're honest about our fear. So that time, that space that I mentioned before, it was me resisting. It was pushing against it instead of surrendering and learning from it. What I have learned through my my own growth process, my own transformation, and essentially, you know, burning my whole life to the ground and rebuilding it, but this time on my own terms, is that if we pause and take a moment to see what are we really scared of, what what's actually happening here and what do we want to do about it and getting really honest that's what enables bravery so i really i don't like the word fearless i think i call i call bs on it i don't think it exists we are human and as human beings we feel fear you and i maybe feel fear about different things and the things that I fear now are different than the things I feared before. And they're different than the things I'm going to feel next week, next month, next year. But I have learned to really sit with it and take it apart and reassess it. And then I leverage that knowledge. 
I use that knowledge to inform the direction that I want to go next. And that's how I empower myself. I'm all about risk. I think I think living an honest, authentic life is a very risky thing to do. But we have to decide for ourselves in that moment. Is the risk somebody might not like me or is the risk somebody may harm me? Right. What What is your risk? You have to be really honest about that before you make decisions. But it's going to be different every second. And that's so much of what the method is about is mm. getting honest in the moment about what you need in order to go where you want to go or to build the things that you want to build. And a lot of times we're afraid of things that we have no evidence will ever actually happen. Janet Blue. This story was written by Michael Kobzik from New Hampshire and narrated by Regina Williams. It was a cloudy night at the Perky Parrot Nightclub. The audience buzzed with anticipation for the headlining act, Beatrice Deluxe. With her platinum blonde hair, red lipstick, and thrumming tenor voice, she was the reason everyone was there. But before she could go on stage, there was an opening act, and she was staring at herself in the vanity, trembling in fear. She thought to herself, how did I even get here? Her mind went back in time. Every day, Janice Blue clocked into the office for the day. She signed into her workstation and lost herself in the world of numbers, figures, and tax documents. This was something she did every day, ever since she was hired by the firm. It was a world where even the slightest mistake could mean financial ruin for the client. But as she worked, she tapped her foot and bobbed her head to the sweet sound of electro-swing music. The stress melted away with the music. One night, she went to see the local cabaret legend, Beatrice Deluxe, live. She sat in the audience, sipping her martini glass as she watched Beatrice dance and sing on stage. The light reflected off of her sparkling dress, almost blinding Janice as she watched with her mouth open. Time seemed to stop as she watched her idol on stage. By the end of the evening, Janice had a few too many drinks. She fixed her glasses and caught up with the loud applause of the audience as Beatrice left the stage. Janice held her breath as she followed Beatrice's path backstage. Just a few minutes later, she was knocking on the door of her dressing room, her name written in loopy cursive on the door. Hello? Beatrice said, popping her gorgeous head out of the door. Janice lost her words for a moment before laughing. I loved you up there, Janice said, trying to keep her composure. Beatrice's unsure expression turned into a nervous smile. Thank you, Beatrice said, unsure how to reply. Janice leaned herself up against the doorframe. I really want to do something like this. But I don't know if I ever could. Janice put her hand on Beatrice's shoulder, startling her. You're so pretty. I wish I could be that pretty. Janice did her best impression of Beatrice's voice, but Beatrice stopped her. Okay, okay, Beatrice said. If you're serious, I can teach you. Janice opened her eyes wide. Really? she exclaimed. A few months later, here she was, 
about to go on stage as Beatrice's opening act. Janice checked her eyeliner, made sure her lipstick had no smudges, and looked at every single curl in her freshly permed hair. She wasn't looking at Janice. She was looking at Janet Blue, the cabaret singer. Ten minutes to showtime, Janet, a playful voice reminded her. Though it was meant to comfort her, Janice felt a chill. Janice bristled as a thousand questions filled her head. What will Mark think? Mark, her husband, waited in the audience. Mark was a lawyer. He was quiet, but tall and intelligent. One night, when washing his black socks, he had found her outfit in the wash the other night. It was meant to be a surprise, but she told him to wait and see her on stage. Another irrational thought crossed her mind. Is he going to leave me? She shook her head, wiping her forehead of sweat with a handkerchief. Are Louis and Martika with him? God, should I have gotten a babysitter? They had two children together, Louis and Martika. They were four years old now. Being a mother, that was nothing compared to being a performer. Janice held her head as her mind clouded up with fear. Then, Janice felt a gloved hand on her back. Janet, are you okay? She turned to see her mentor, Beatrice Deluxe. She looked like she had just stepped off the poster of a 1950s blockbuster. Compared to Janice, she was perfect for the stage. The two of them stood together, their red and blue dresses contrasting. B, Janice said, her lip trembling. I don't know if I can do this. Beatrice looked right into Janice's eyes. You're going to do great, Beatrice said, rubbing her shoulder. This, this isn't me, though, Janice said, shifting her shoulder away from Beatrice. I'm Janice, not, uh, not Janet. I'm a public accountant. I'm married. I have two kids. God, who am I fooling with this whole act? I should just... Beatrice put a finger to Janice's lips. Janet, Beatrice said, can you keep a big secret? Janice nodded, her face frozen. <laughs> I'm a dentist, Beatrice said, stifling a laugh. All day I look at teeth. But when the night falls and I get in this dress and go up on that stage, I'm a new person. You say you've got fear, girl? That's totally fine. F fearless, you have to be brave, okay? Janice wasn't sure what to say, but she didn't need to say anything. Trust me, Beatrice said. Once you get up there, it's like magic. You're another person. Janice couldn't imagine what kind of a person Beatrice was like outside of this nightclub. She was like a superhero, with a secret identity and everything. A dentist. Janice couldn't believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, boomed the announcer, put your hands together for our opening act. Live on stage for the first time ever, Janet Blue. The moment had come for Janice to perform. Beatrice and Janice hugged. Knock them dead. Beatrice said, patting her on the back. Janice was ready. 
Janice clasped her hands together and walked out on stage. She searched around the crowd for Mark and found him in the front row. He smiled, holding onto something on the table that Janice couldn't see. She found the microphone and stood up on stage. The spotlight shined bright on Janice. The music hadn't started yet. It was just her and the audience. She could feel the eyes of everyone in the audience on her, burning into her like she was standing outside in the sun without any sunblock. Like magic, time stopped for Janice. Her heart beat faster and faster as she clasped the microphone stand. She looked behind herself, seeing the smiling faces of the accompanying band. Somehow, their smiles comforted her for a moment. She opened and closed her mouth in the same second. She wanted to say something like, Thank you all for coming, or I wanted to dedicate this one to my dear husband Mark, but she didn't want to embarrass him in front of everybody. Instead, she decided that all she needed was the music. She raised her hand and snapped her fingers. Hit it, boys! The band roared to life and began to play the jazzy song. The brass horns blew, the drums boomed, and the backup singers danced. A rush of energy filled Janice, and she closed her eyes as she waited to begin. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Finally, her part of the song arrived. Her lips parted, and her alto voice rang out of her tiny throat. In that moment, Janice Blue disappeared, and Janet Blue was finally born. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of The True Fiction Project, featuring a mashup of the fan favorites for Season 1. I'm your host, Renita Hora. Here at The True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Music